Good evening and welcome to the community hall for this very exciting Ledbury Poetry Festival event, joined up writing with Roger McGuff. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank our event sponsors, the Arts Council England, supporters of Ledbury Poetry Festival now in its 23rd year and our local sponsors, Red Kite Solicitors, incorporating Orm and Slade, who are continuing in their outstanding support of the festival. Thank you. We are thrilled and honored tonight to welcome Roger McGuff, poet, author, playwright, and broadcaster. Roger's many impressive awards include Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, President of the Poetry Society, CBE, and OBE. His poems explore the human experience with wit, reverence, and vivacity, and his new collection, entitled Joined Up Writing, ranges from forgotten friendships and family life to the trauma of war and contemporary global politics. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Roger McGuff. Thank you, Thank you very much. That's very... Very warm and th very warm and kind. Very warm, very warm, isn't it? But there's a very warm introduction. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for for coming this evening. Um, I'd like to uh, begin uh, with a poem influenced by uh, Allen Ginsberg. Um, Allen Ginsberg wrote a poem called "The Ballad of the Skeleton," um, and it was published in 1995. And I really liked the, the poem, the way it was set out. And, uh, but it's very much of its time, about New York at the time, the things that concerned him. So I wanted to uh, sort of anglicize it and uh, bring it up to date. And this is called The Ginsberg Skeleton. Said the FIFA skeleton, hide the whistle and line our pockets. Said the arms dealer skeleton, sell the mortars, tanks and rockets. Said the dope dealer skeleton, I can't cope with the demand. Said the false prophet skeleton, it is written in the sand. Said the tobacco skeleton, there's a billion lungs to fill. Said the ISIS skeleton, that's what we do, we kill. Said the whip-cracking skeleton, love that lip-smacking blood. Said the beheading skeleton, it's just like chopping wood. Said the far-right skeleton, we must keep them at the borders. Said the tear gas skeleton, I'm just obeying orders. Said the people smuggler skeleton, I put freedom within reach. Said the washed-up skeleton, they found me on the beach. Said the Ebola skeleton, sorry I'm not finished yet. Said the World Bank skeleton, you can breathe when you paid your debt. Said the NRA skeleton, it's a basic human right. Said the bullet riddle skeleton, yup, damn right. Said the schoolgirl skeleton, I wish we never met. Said the grooming skeleton, what you see ain't what you get. Said the self-harming skeleton, the blade cuts out the ache in me. Said the Jesus skeleton, why hast thou forsaken me? Said the payday skeleton, keep on taking out the loans. Said the skeleton of color, am I the token bones? Said the Harley Street skeleton, you can never afford my fee. Said the lying in state skeleton, what you see is what you'll be. Said the skeleton in the cupboard, who locked me up in here? Said the Brexit skeleton, seemed a good idea. Said the plagiarized skeleton, I'll call the poetry police. Said the Ginsberg skeleton, now let me rest in peace. Said the Ginsberg skeleton, now let me rest in peace. Um, thank you. 
this next poem is also um, uh, influenced by an American poet, this time Walt Whitman. And you may know, maybe aware of that poem, of his lovely poem called I Hear America Singing. Do you know it? And it's a wonderful a poem about, a, it's a paean to a young America, you know, the turn of the last century, a youthful America, uh, forward-looking and, and full of vim. And, and this one, uh, first, the first stanza of that poem is, I hear America singing, the varied carols I hear. Those are mechanics, each one singing his, as it should be, blithe and strong. The carpenter singing his, as he measures his plank or beam. The mason singing his, the boatman, the shoemaker, the mother, each singing what belongs to him and to no one else. And it goes on like that. And this is, times have changed. Um, this is really a, a love letter to America called, I hear America sighing. I hear America sighing. The varied complaints I hear. Those are mechanics, each one bemoaning his as he walks away from the shutdown factory. The carpenter bewailing his as he boards up another broken shop window. The matron in the hospital barking hers, harking back to the days of Obama. The boatmen lamenting theirs, nets full of plastic bags and bottles. The celebrity tweeting hers about the intrusion of privacy. The banker howling his like the ghost of a wolf on Wall Street. The shoemaker grumbling his as a son burrs, buys another pair of Adidas trainers. The belly aching of the blame throwers. The keening chorus of mothers grieving for murdered sons. Each crying what belongs to him and to her and to no one else. America, I grew up with you. You, my brash elder brother. Superhero. Singing in the rain from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. From the sands of Iwo Jima to a Coney Island of the mind. Star-spangled romantic. Laconic wisecracker, go-getter, no sooner said than done. Now the wisdom, has it cracked? The getting, has it gone? The stars have dimmed, no moon ahead. Oh say, can you dance by the light of the rocket's red glare? In Times Square, the wind moans. And all around the sound of groaning, the earth trembling as the screen fades to black. Stop sighing, America. Start singing. Time to come back. Thank you. Um, who's that at the door? Did you hear someone knock? It's the man from the volcano bearing ash and molten rock. The man from the earthquake, the man from the tsunami, the man from the Taliban with IEDs for the army. The man from the jihad fresh from the slaughter, the Boko Haram man come for your daughter. Who's that at the door? Is there someone outside? It's the man from the cancer in search of a bride. The man from the porn film, the man from the abuse, the man from the genocide still on the loose. The man from the nightmare, the man from the fear, the man from the news we don't wish to hear. The man with the plans for the next civil war. Did I hear someone knock? Who's that at the door? Um, this, is, this is confusion. Am I the only one who's confused? <sighs> A thigh bone the size of Cleopatra's needle unearthed in Patagonia. Novichok in Salisbury. Scones and polonium tea in Mayfair. In Duluth, a tattooist tattoos his initials on the whites of his girlfriend's eyes. 
another boat filled with migrants capsizes. Shares saw there's a plummeting pound the morning after the other way round. If you're not British, best get packing. Build more runways, let's get fracking. <sighs> Hundreds lost on cruise ship in Mediterranean. Screams newspaper headline. Turns out there was only one winner on the SS Saga Rose that night. When Mrs. Beryl Crossley from Leeds won six bingo games in succession. I will eat chuffed, she said. A swan in Suffolk swallows a hot coal. In Duluth, partially sighted girl seeks new boyfriend with the initials WB. Have I been transgender all these years and nobody had the decency to tell me? Am I the only one who's confused? <sighs> Obviously not. <laughs> you. Um, this is um, a villanelle <coughs> for dark times. Obviously, you know, there's awful things going on in the world politically and so forth and so on. But even a newspaper, and uh, the newspapers always look for the, something bad happened that day to, to make the headlines, as you know. And so Villanelle for Hard Times called It's a Jungle Out There. On leaving the house, you best say a prayer. Take my advice and don't travel by train. As Tarzan said to Jane, it's a jungle out there. I'm not a man who will easily scare, but I'd rather chew wasps than get on a plane on leaving the house, you best say a prayer. Sugar's the killer, and it's everywhere. You can't avoid salt, so your heart's under strain. As Tarzan said to Jane, it's a jungle out there. Avoid beef like the plague, and the sun's blinding glare. Alcohol slowly eats away the brain on leaving the house, you best say a prayer. When the sky turns purple, better beware. Gamma rays on the breeze and acid in the rain. As Tarzan said to Jane, it's a jungle out there. Don't drink the water and don't breathe the air. For the sake of the children, repeat the refrain. On leaving the house, you best say a prayer. As Tarzan said to Jane. <laughs> Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you, Liz. Um, ah. That was, as I said, a bit of nail. And uh, I know there are lots of poets in the audience and, and people know about these things. You know, Villanelle, uh, that's a uh, type of poem. It's French, and uh, we only use two rhymes. Just two rhymes, and you repeat lines. gives us some melodic uh, thing. Villanelle. Now, uh, I'd written a piece a few weeks ago for the Radio Times about poetry, and I was on my way to Sheffield uh, to do a gig, and I was waiting in the, in the cafe there, and I got a email text and it was from the editor of the radio times said roger will you write a short piece very quickly by by tomorrow um just 80 words 80 words you know and knock it off, about what he'd been watching on television you know just just right i thought i can't i said i can't do that. i can't do that you know i'm busy i'm on my way to sheffield thinking about what i'm doing tonight what, what i'm going to wear you know um and um Anyway, I just thought, what do I watch? What do I, I, what I do watch? I just like watching Killing Eve. Do you like that? Watch Killing Eve with Villanelle. You know, good old Villanelle. I thought, hey, Villanelle? Villanelle? <sighs> and I got all excited. Anyway, and uh, so I got on the train. And then I, I know, I like Jodie Comer, you know, the girl who plays Villanelle. I know that she's a scouser uh, for Liverpool. Have you ever heard her speak? In real life, yeah, she goes, and I speak like that, doesn't she? It's great, she's a real scouser, real lovely, lovely girl. And um, also, she's a keen Evertonian. I know that because her father. Don't laugh. Um, 
Uh, father uh, uh, worked uh, for, for Evan as a psychotherapist. Psycho, psych, psychotherapist. No, <laughs> physiotherapist. Physiopsycho. Um, anyway, so I wrote this on, on the train. Go, Sheffield sent it off. Villanelle. An actress who was always in the news. Her name is Villanelle, and she sticks up for the blues. If I had to be exterminated, I would choose this assassin who casts a spell. An actress who was always in the news. The star of Killing Eve. She gets the best reviews. Oh, Sandra, oh, it must be hell. <laughs> Though it's a game that neither of you lose. A scouser whom no one can accuse of being a big head. She's nice, you can tell. Otherwise, why stick up for the blues? I tried to write a villanelle, but like Everton, haven't done too well. For an actress who's always in the news, Jodie Comer, and she sticks up for the blues. There. Um, has, has anybody here, has anybody here won a baby competition when they were a baby? Anyway, hands up, don't be afraid. Hands up, I can't see it in the back, actually. Uh, shout out if you won a baby competition, most beautiful baby. Yes, you can tell he's still there, still there. Um, yeah, probably a few of you are probably too shy to, to admit to. Well, I did, actually, uh, when I was young. I don't know if you find this. Uh, it has effect on you. It affects your life in a bad way. Did you find that? I, anyway, this um, poem about that, and it's called The Overall Winner. I remember wondering, aged 18 months, as the Lady Mayoress crowned me, overall winner of the Bootle and District Bonnie Baby Show, if life will be downhill from then on. My mother, posing proudly for the Echo photographer, would seldom feel so fulfilled. One arm around her prize-winning son, the other holding the prize, a pair of khaki overalls. No crawling races, rattle-throwing or dummy-catching. No tricky questions, no need to impress or outfox. All I'd been required to do was smile and not fill my pants. By and large, life skills that have stood me in good stead over the years. <laughs> but on a daily basis, I miss the unsolicited adulation, the warm consolation of my mother's arm. The overalls never did find a use for them. That, that was a bit of poetic license about the overalls, because it wasn't really the prize, as you can imagine, overalls, that's silly. Um, but what the prize was, there was a prize, and it was an electric iron. So I'm, we're going back a few years here, you know, obviously, and it, went, it was during the war, then before the war, when I won this. And so we were the first on our street to get electric iron. My mother was delighted. The trouble is, we didn't have electricity. And uh, <laughs> so she had to put it on the gas ring to, to warm it up. Oh, Showbiz. This is how I learned to read many years ago. Learning to read during the war wasn't easy, as books were few and far between. But mother made sure I didn't go to sleep without a bedtime story. Because of the blackout, the warm, comforting glow of a bedside lamp was not permitted. So mum would pull back the curtains and open wide the window. And by the light of a blazing factory or a crashed Messerschmitt, Cuddled up together, she would read sauce bottles, jam jars, cans of sardines, and my all-time favourite, a tin of Ovaltine. So many years ago, 
But still I remember her gentle guidance as I read aloud my first sentence. Sprinkle two heaped teaspoonsful. Thank you. Um, when, when I was at, um, no, when I was at school, first went to school, very young, and some of you may remember in those days, diversity hadn't been invented in those days. And you were either, you were what you were, you know, you big little boy, girl, mousy-eared or, or ginger. You know, you just, that's it, you became it. Um, but of course, it, it did give rise to certain, um, uh, well, you know, Protestants, Catholics, and we're a Catholic or a Protestant, and, you know, I had to worry about it. So this poem called Of Protestants. You knew where you were at Holy Cross Junior School. The world was divided into Catholics, by far the best, and those doomed to a life of bewilderment, emptiness, and eventual damnation, the rest. <laughs> Jews were fine, but only Catholic ones, <laughs> like the Twelve Apostles and the Virgin Mary. Muslims, mysterious. Buddhists, weird. But of Protestants, one had to be wary. King Herod, for example. Judas and Henry VIII. Rangers fans. The average Bobby on the beat, serial killers, and those big rough boys from the tech at the end of the street. <laughs> then the whisper that Hitler had been a Catholic. <gasps> Mussolini, Guy Fawkes, Robespierre, Al Capone. My faith suddenly put to the test. So one morning in class, I asked Sister Malone. Smack! Protestants, the lot of them. Smack! Burning in hell, sure as night follows day. Then, reassuringly, not to worry, I won't tell your parents. Now stand up, everybody, and let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. This is my first faltering steps into sort of um, sexual awakening, really. It's about chips, actually. Um, not more, more than that. It's not as good as it sounds. It's, um, it's called Mermaid and Chips. We had half a dozen chippies within walking distance of home. The nearest was the dearest. A penny more on the fish, stingy with the chips, and no mushy peas. We gave the friary a wide berth. Mr. Clark, who limped and chain-smoked in the happy place, was as sour as his pickled eggs. Known as spit in the boiler, his dark shop we avoided like the plague. Although, in defense of the grumpy emphysemia sufferer, it was said that the infected phlegm would have been rendered harmless by the boiling fat. <laughs> the, the lobster shell, with its takeaway paper napkins and finicky wooden forks, too pretentious. And the chip suey, where my lie lost her dentures, shouting at a pan of curry sauce. Too risky. Our chosen chippy, Turner's, was a family affair with Ted, a showman, at home on the range, in front of which he entertained the queue behind him with a stream of quips, delivered into the steamed-up mirror. Flipping chips, he'd say, doing just that. The temperature of the bubbling fat he gauged with a calloused finger, before committing to the deep the batter-shrouded cod. A master of the guillotine, he sliced spuds for scallops, while his wife and young Linda in overalls, salt bright and spotless, divvied out the crisp golden hoard. Despite my school uniform, Linda took a shine to me. Extra chips were a matter of course, not to mention the odd fish cake. 
but I wanted more than scraps. As mum and daughter worked behind a counter, we only saw them from the waist up, and I dreamed of Linda as a mermaid, half woman, half haddock, big, <laughs> big breasts, and a silvery fishtail in place of down there. Um, boldness be my friend. Boldness be my friend. That's a good, uh, good motto to have. Uh, boldness was never a friend of mine. Uh, reticence was a uh, good mate, but boldness, no. And uh, I always regret sometimes not being more, you know, take chances when they're offered to you when you were younger. You know, you had all these crazy things you could have done. And I used to hang out with, you know, people who really enjoy themselves. And I still never did. Mind you, they're all dead. No. Um, this one <laughs> is called Crazy Bastard. I've always enjoyed the company of extroverts. Wild-eyed men who would go too far, up to the edge and beyond. Mad, bad women. Overcautious me. Sensible shoes and a scarf tucked in. Fresh fruit and plenty of sleep. If the sign said, keep off, then off is where I keep. Midsummer's Eve in the 60s. On a moonlit beach in Devon, we sit around a fire drinking wine and cider. Someone strumming a guitar. Suddenly, a girl strips off and runs into the sea. Everybody follows suit. A whoop of flickering nakedness. Hot gold into cold silver, far out. Not wanting to be last in, I unbutton my jeans. Then pause. Someone had better stay behind to keep an eye on the clothes. <laughs> common sense. I throw another piece of driftwood onto the fire. Above the crackle, listen to the screams and laughter. Take a long, untroubled swig of scrumpy. Crazy bastard. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my wife, last Christmas, gave me one of those DNA heritage testing kits. Don't know why yet, but anyway, she did. And uh, I was quite interested. I thought, well, I, I look, look forward to the family tree. Uh, probably a Shelley somewhere up there, you know, Byron. Who knows? Um, there wasn't. Uh, but this poem's called The Full English. Perhaps I shouldn't have been drinking Guinness and eating olives when I did the swab test for my DNA. <laughs> the results confirmed what I long suspected. A dearth of Englishness. 69.6% Irish and Scottish. No surprises there, I suppose. A Mac in the name is a sporran stuffed with shamrock. But 12.5% Spanish, Italian and Greek. A Roman soldier. Centurion, I imagine, sweeping my great-great-great-great-grandma off her feet at a Cayley in Connemara. <laughs> with promises of sea, sand and sunshine. Hardly. A quickie on a peat bog in the pouring rain, more like. <laughs> only 17.9% English. I can't believe it. That's only half a buttockful. What polite hostility kept my forebears at a distance? Immigrants over here under sufferance. Mass goers with a propensity for large families and drink. Accents that goaded the neighbours. But let me be thankful for this heady genetic cocktail, a pinch of Plato, a sliver of Virgil, 
a little locker and a cement mixer full of cheek and blarney. Unable to face the full English, I pushed the fry up aside and taking out Grandad's little tin whistle, put it to my lips, failing as ever to get a decent tune out of it. I used to, uh, for a few years, I was the voice of Waitrose. Um, yeah, it was great. And it's <laughs> great thing to do. Uh, I used to enjoy it. Very nice, nice people. And just going, go to Soho and record whatever. And, uh, you know, for, for a poet, the money was good. And, uh, but it, it dried up, as these things do. Just finished. You know, get the, the courtesy call. You know, courtesy, just a courtesy call, Roger. You know, fuck off. And um, <laughs> it, it finished. And uh, nothing since. It's been a while. And so, just forget it. And then, just suddenly last week, honestly, I got, I got an email from my agency, voiceover agency, and said, well, I'm available for this, do the voiceover this week. Like, woo! So, yeah, great, last. And uh, so they sent me the scripts, and it was three scripts, television scripts, to go out uh, in t- on television in Africa for gambling, gambling, <laughs> bet quick in, in gambling in, in Africa, you know, to, to help the kids, you know, become gamblers. And um, I thought, well, I, I thought well, I can't, can't do that, can you? You know, just can't do it, can't do it. So I just, no, sorry, not doing it. Stop rang up my agent, not doing that. Then I thought, in bed that night, no one would know, would they? I mean, just, <laughs> no, no, you know, I'm a human. And, um, you know, I, I mean, the voice, anyway, but anyway, I didn't, didn't do it. But what I did do, I wrote this poem for the person who did it. Bit my, next morning, they were lining up to do it. Someone will have done it. It'll be done now. It'll be out there. So this is called voiceover. Bet on a horse. Bet on the game. Lose all your money. Terrible shame. You're the loser. I'm not to blame. I'm only the voice. The voiceover. Hit the jackpot twice this week. Up the ante. It's a winning streak. Oh, no. Bad luck. You're up shit creek. But don't point at me. I'm only the voice. The voiceover. As much excitement as you'll get. Remortgage the house for one last bet. Oh dear, how sad, in serious debt. But don't blame me, I'm only the voice, the voiceover. I'm just part of an ad campaign. If the money's right, I'll do it again. Though drawing in the line at guns and cocaine, I'm not the brain, I'm only the voice, the voiceover. Mind you, cash might well persuade me. If the word got out, say, say somebody made me. A drug dealer with a gun. But Beckwick paid me. So I'm not to blame, I'm only the voice, the voiceover. And remember, when the fun stops, we don't. Thank you. Thank you. We care about recycling, don't we? This, just checking. This is called recycling. I care about the environment and try to do what is right. So I cycle to work every morning and recycle home every night. (laughs) It's called give and take. I give you clean air. You give me poisonous gas. I give you mountains. You give me quarries. I give you pure snow. You give me acid rain. I give you spring fountains. You give me toxic canals. I give you a butterfly. You give me a plastic bottle. I give you a blackbird. 
you give me a cruise missile. I give you abundance. You give me waste. I give you one last chance. You give me excuse after excuse after excuse. Yes, um, thank you. I know we're so many writers here, and we write poems, and it's an interesting thing that the reason you write a poem, the reason you paint a picture or a piece of music, it's an impulse that makes you do it. You want to do it, and that, that's, that's what it is in itself. And there's a point, perhaps, where you want to share it with somebody uh, to read it, um, or in, in the case of poetry, to, to publish it, and hope that someone will read it. And, of course, that doesn't always happen. And so this is um, for those poems out there that are unpublished, unheard, and unseen. Firing blanks. If you have no interest in literature, poetry in particular, the chances are that you will never read this poem. Perhaps you scarcely read at all, or are unable to. You don't speak the language. Perhaps you're dead, having passed away some years before publication. Not even born yet. Now, there's a thought. And when you are, and you grow up to be a fine person, there'll be more to occupy you than skimming through a book of old poems. If you never read this poem, what will you have missed? The intimacy that exists, allegedly, between reader and writer. The chance to impress friends with a few lines learned by heart. For a poem written but unread, let us give thanks and spur a thought for the poet Innocently firing blanks. Do you know, um, can you guess what the most uh, popular poem requested on Poetry Please is? If, uh, if that, was, that was top of the charts for many years, yep. What else will be very popular? Yeah. The Raven, yep. And uh, the, the one most popular last year or two has been Stopping by Woods on a, on a uh, snow evening by uh, Robert Frost, lovely. And this next poem is another one, and uh, you can guess what the poem is. It's called Out of My Depth in Language. Early dawn, and on the point of giving up, I see coastal lights. Take a deep breath and strike out. Scared of heights, the moon still clings to the sky, but stars, having lost interest, are calling it a day. Beneath, fish wriggle through nets like mischievous noughts and crosses. On the seabed, a book of poems by Stevie Smith, open at page 47, lies half-buried. Land is within sight, but I hesitate. Dive, rescue the book, and swim toward the shore. It is further away than I thought, much further. What they saw, hours later, those stretched out on the sand or dozing in deck chairs, was a man far out at sea waving a book. For him, the shore was always out of reach, and he never made it, like the man in the poem in the book on the beach. And you know the poem, of course, not, not waving, not waving but drowning. Maybe that's um, it's really good. I, love, I, I do enjoy literary festivals, and this one's one of the top ones for, for many reasons, uh, Lebri. And because people know the... No, they're poetry, love the literature. You know, you can walk into, I can see you walk in here. It's sort of, the erudition is almost palpable. <laughs> no. 
It is. I was saying to Adrian, my friend, my friend before, we was in, whew, I guess you go some places and certain poems you couldn't do. It's, you know, it's a waste of time because some people um, wouldn't, wouldn't know what uh, lipography was or <laughs> never heard of George Perec. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, George Perec, uh, if, you, if you missed out, uh, George Perec was a, a wonderful French novelist, uh, published a book in 1969 called La Disparition, uh, which is 50,000 words in which he didn't use the letter E. And lipography, in fact, is um, leaving words out. That's what lipography is. So I imagined uh, George Perec uh, reviewing the Oxford book of 20th century English verse, by Philip Larkin. So this is George Perrett. This heavy volume is a must for popple who lick pottery. <laughs> palm after palm in a glorious fast of literature. Mumumumum sims and mitzvahs everywhere. Grat poems are fattered from the licks of Louis McNick, John Pitchman, Hilaire Block, T.S. Leart, Tunich Hughes and Samus Honey. Nothing, and it goes on, like, you know, yeah, it's silly, yeah, 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 go, yeah, go, go. Um, there's a poem about a uh, wonderful uh, Samus Hani, uh, Seamus Heaney, of course, and uh, I was over in Armagh uh, in, in Derry this year, uh, reading at his house, and at, uh, some of his brothers were a wonderful poet, and this poem's about sort of envy, poetic envy, really, and it's called Famous. F-E-A-M-U-S. The honesty, the cloak of fame he bore effortlessly, the sense of calm he brought to saloon and palace, the erudition and the sanctified crack of language. St. Francis, he could mend the broken wings of words. Perhaps inevitably, he inspired not only love but envy. Fellow poets admired him and acknowledged their debt. A giant in our midst, no one could deny. And yet... And yet, the thought occurred, stifled at first, and then whispered around pub tables where English poets gathered, that had they been gifted a field of potatoes in which to dig, a South Derry accent and a tractor, grown up with the smell of dung, urine, and buttermilk in their nostrils, as a boy ridden horse and cart to Ballyscunion, Monimini, and Killaloo, then who knows what each of them might have achieved. They toasted the sad passing of a great poet, finished their Guinness, and took buses and tubes back to Kilburn, Mile End, and Homerson. Thank you. Um, I was at... I loved... Uh, one of the things that really brought me to poetry when I was at uh, Hull University and... Um, one of the students I was listening, went into the room one night, and he was listening to an LP of uh, Under Milkwood, you know, with uh, Richard Burton playing the part. It was wonderful. That really, first time I'd really heard poetry. It was always listening to poetry, I think, rather than reading it, that, that um, inspired me. And um, so I loved that. And I've been back to Larne on several occasions and um, been to the boathouse where he worked and also Brown's Hotel, the pub, which he fre frequented uh, too frequently, they say. And uh, one of the locals, they stand by this, and they swear to it, that that's where he used to go most nights. 
and eavesdrop on barroom conversations which he'd use in Under Milkwood. I'm not so sure. Anyway, so imagine there's the bar, and Dylan's over in the corner, and someone comes in after them. Well, if it isn't die the fish. Had a good day, Boyle? Aye. I've been out on the slow black, slow black fishing boat bobbing sea. And I got a thirst like a dredger. Just give me a pint of stout, won't you? It's quiet in here tonight. Aye. You can hear the houses sleeping in the streets. In the slow, deep, salt and silent black bandage night. That'll be one shilling and fourpence, please. I see Dylan the eavesdropper up to his old tricks. Pretending to be so busy writing poems he can't hear us. What's this? Good evening, Mr. Thomas. Caitlin in London, is she? That's right, Di. She'll be back home tomorrow. <laughs> Bet you can't wait, eh? Whacking thighed and piping hot. Thunderbolt brassed and barnacle breasted. Flailing up the cockles with eyes like blow lamps and scooping low over a lonely water bottle body. That's right, Di, yes. Um, <laughs> barnacle breasted. That's one word, is it? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, this morning, this next poem contains language. And uh, it was, yeah, the year 2000 was quite a good year for poetry. There's a lot of money going. The Arts Council gave a lot of money to um, it's the Poetry Society, amongst other things. And uh, they created these poet residencies. A lot of poets went into, they got a poet in, in, a, in a prison, obviously, in a lighthouse. Some poets went into a zoo. And it was all wonderful. And I was offered this uh, poetry residence for British Telecom. Interesting. So, anyway, so I wrote, I did it in two years, and this is where it's called The Power of Poetry, and introduces it saying, The initial aim of my appointment as poet in residence for British Telecom in the year 2000 was to encourage staff to write poems and email them to me, a sort of creative online workshop. Unfortunately, my appointment coincided with the sacking of a large number of employees as part of a major restructuring of the company. <laughs> Perfect timing, terrible. So here are some of my letters I wrote to the, the poets. Dear Harry, thank you for the poem. Deeply felt, the sense of outrage and anger is palpable. I wonder, though, if the passion occasionally overrides and obfuscates the argument you wish to make. And it must be said that the use of the F word 14 times in a sonnet serves to unbalance the otherwise lyrical qualities to be found therein. <laughs> Worth some revision, perhaps. P.S. In the neat envoi that rounds off the poem, I think you'll agree that the C word does not rhyme with C-E-O. <laughs> Dear Linda, thank you for the 17 haiku I received this morning. I warmed the playfulness of the idea. Seventeen haiku, each containing seventeen syllables, as the form dictates. Wonderful. However, your choice of the word shit for each syllable, <laughs> although adding to the rhythm and musicality of the form, is limiting. And 289 shits strays too far from the essence of haiku 
as exemplified by Bashu in the 17th century. <clears throat> Dear Kimberly, first of all, a few words about the poem that came to you as in a dream, which I dashed off in a single sitting. The title, although memorable, sent out the warning signals, making Horlicks for Martin Amos. I think you will discover, and sorry to be the bearer of bad news, that Wendy Cope published an identical poem in a 1986 collection entitled Making Cocoa for Kingsley Amos. <laughs> I'm sure plagiarism was not your intention, so moving on. Yours was a lovely letter, and thank you for the offer. But at the moment, I'm not seeking an assistant, or live-in muse, as you put it. Perhaps you are misled by the rakish poet who features in some of my early verses. I must confess that the philandering would-be Byron has moved on in years and is now in a stable relationship. However, the photographs of yourself attached, <laughs> as a son would have it, I will keep on file, should my domestic arrangements change in the near future. Dear Luke, I'm sorry to learn you are now out of work or thrown onto the crap heap, as you put it, in the impassioned email that accompanied your limerick entitled There Was a Fat Twat from BT. <laughs> and again, sorry, but in my role as online poet-in-residence, I'm not in a position to plead on your behalf for reinstatement. Yes, as you rightly point out, I frequently extol the power of poetry, but I fear on this occasion your recent employers may have reached, reached for the off switch. Thank you. Thank you. Um, kids are great, aren't they? Aren't kids good? Aren't, aren't kids? Aren't they? Kids, children. I think so. Yeah, you know, baby, you have a baby, and the babies are coming around, lovely, and they've got toddlers, and they've got teenagers, and they go to college, and then they leave home, and they get jobs, and send you money, and, and take, you on, <laughs> take you on holiday, and, and things. They don't, do they? No, 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 no. No, no, no I've had um, four, oh, sorry, and I thought, um, there's a little prayer called payback time. Oh, Lord, let me be a burden on my children. For long they've been a burden upon me. May they fetch and carry, clean and scrub, and do so cheerfully. Let them take it at turns at putting me up. Nice sunny rooms, the top of the stairs, with a walk-in bath and lift installed. At great expense, theirs. Insurance against the body blows of time, isn't that what having children's all about? To bring them up knowing that they owe you and can't contract out? What's money for but to spend on their schooling? Designer clothes, mindless hobbies, usual stuff. And as soon as they're earning, off they go. Well, enough's enough. It's been a blessing watching them develop. The parental pride we felt as each one grew. But Lord, let me be a burden on my children, and on my children's children too. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's strange, though. You never think you, you're a burden on your, on your family. On your, this point about my mother and... You know, my mother and father worked very hard, you know, to, there was no money around at the time and um, worked very hard, but I was, you never sort of, 
thank them. Maybe, maybe they, want, they don't want thanking. I don't know. But this, this sort of um, thinking about that. It's a poem called Where Is My Mother? Where is my mother in all these poems? Good question. My father, who wouldn't thank me for it, is outside the school railings and there in the backyard failing to teach me how to box. But don't point, you're embarrassing. Ants abound, gabby and gossipy, with stories of the blitz, mad neighbours, loss and religion. Unsure of themselves, uniformed uncles drift in and out, like their fathers, buttoned up and elusive. Grandads, what accents did you speak with? Could you dance? My grandmothers remain seated, amazed at their own wit and wisdom, of tongues posthumously gifted. Eyes closed, I count slowly to a hundred, and listen to my grandchildren hiding and giggling, in no hurry to be caught. And my own children, what are they? All the four square out of harm's way, and long since outgrown my concerned musings. And the one missing, my mother, where is she? Memory fading at the margin still, just out of sight. The one I aim to please with a poem I write. So, um, so this poem also contains another line from American poet Leroy Jones. And the line in his poem about New York was, it's like being chained to some dead actress. And it was a poem about New York, and I think he was, you know, the idea it's been filmed so often. You're walking through it, you feel, you know, you're in a film. And that's, that's, that's the idea. Anyway, that sparked off this recent poem called Chained to the Past. Not dead so much as failed. Her career had never taken off. And on those walks across the common on unseasonably warm February afternoons, she would complain endlessly about the duplicity of fellow actors, the greed of agents, the prejudice and bias of self-serving directors. I point out the bluebells, a sprinkling of snowdrops, sexual harassment, the same stories over and over, though burr of leaves, the gnarled beauty of the sycamore, dressing room rituals and theatres I've never visited nor are likely to. Look, a chaffinch. Plays I've no wish to see, starring actors I've never heard of or will. On some days, I'm tempted to loosen the chains and set her free. Bid her run and run into the imaginary past she so desired. Returning with Oscars, BAFTAs and bouquets clutched to her bosom. But she won't. On other days, I'm tempted to loosen the chains and set myself free. Bid myself run and run into the real and recent past, but I can't and never will. Too early for a chaffinch, she says, before turning me round and wheeling me home. This is called A Fine Romance. Excuse me, darling, in advance for the slow, macabre dance I may one day lead you into. Holding you too tight for comfort and whispering endearments. If I should call you by another's name, a lover's perhaps from years ago, don't be startled, it's just a slip of the moonlight. 
And when the music grows louder and the dance goes faster, and losing my balance, I stumble, words spinning off in all directions. Don't be embarrassed. It's just a slip of the darkness. For when the blizzard rages and snow settles on words, their sense becomes frozen. Language hallucinates. Listen, that's me out there, howling at the scrabble board. Should I fail to recognize you? Curse, complain, step on your toes. Forgive me, I didn't mean to. For this is a fine romance. Despite the slow, macabre dance, I may one day lead you into. Thank you. Carpe diem. On reaching 70, I decided to live every day as if it were my last. But after three days of lying in bed in a darkened room, <laughs> I tore off the oxygen mask, opened the curtains and sacked the nurse. There was more to life, surely, than worrying about when it would end and how. The secret was carpe diem. So out I went to seize the day, to catch it unawares and hug it, to bathe in its light, to enjoy every minute. But the day kept me at arm's length, didn't want to be touched, bobbed and weaved until it dwindled away. At 1am, I ended up in the bar of the carpe diem, drunk and counting the cost. Another day wasted, another chance lost. Who should walk in, looking the worst for wear, but the nurse? We hugged and staggered back home. She drew the curtains. We climbed into bed. <laughs> oh, there it is. Um, comedians nowadays, if you're a comedian, uh, things get harder. You know, certain things you don't make jokes about anymore. As you know, a few years ago, you make jokes about, you know, fat people, black people. You can't do it anymore. But uh, so... The older generation is still one of the targets still they're making jokes about. And um, there's a poem called The Old Jokes. The old jokes are the best. The ones about demented granddads and stir lifts, incontinence pads, the whiff of the care home, the belch of the colostomy bag, zimmers, commodes, and the rest. The mosquito whine of a deaf aid, the grimace in a glass by the bed. The dribbly and the wrinkly, the twirly, the cauliflower head. Ah, the old jokes are the best jokes. For young comedians, an easier laugh. But now I'm one of the old folks. It's not funny anymore. So fuck off. <laughs> um, just, just, just a couple more to, to finish. Um, this is called The Cure for Aging, uh, and has a little thing at the beginning. If anybody says to you, what do you expect at your age? Hit them. Um, <laughs> the Cure for Aging. There is no cure for aging. Death may be incurable, but growing old is not an illness. And some are better at it than others. The secret? Think yourself younger than you really are. On a crowded bus or tube, offer your seat to a young man. <laughs> Help a traffic warden across a busy road. <laughs> Grow cannabis in the commode. Rocking chair, stick it up on the roof. Discreet tattoo or a gold false tooth. Design a website, invent an app. 
Buy your clothes from Topshop and Gap. Take up Zumba. Forget to nap. Time flies, they say, but it's us that fly. Time sits on its hands as we rush by. And life has a way of gathering speed. So seize the day we're a special breed. For in the stifled yawn of a brain, the slip of a cell, the dim of an eye, the fluff of a heartbeat, you are old. Welcome to the fold. And this is Big Hugs. Before I go, who do I give a hug to? Family, obviously. Big soppy hugs all round. And relatives, including those I've never met. Exes. Lovers and girlfriends, especially the ones who'd rather I didn't. <laughs> Classmates, most. Teachers, some. Friends who've passed away and parents long gone. Big, big hugs. Places. How do you give Liverpool a hug? High five a liver bird? Edinburgh, each fringe a playful tug. Hull University, a pat on the back. Gigs and dressing rooms, holidays and hangovers. File them under memories. Memories. Give them all a hug. Even the bad ones. Wasn't their fault. Failures, embarrassments, anxiety and fear, sickness and pain. You're all forgiven. Come here. Time for a group hug. When it's time to go, who do I give a hug to? Or should that be, to whom do I give a hug? Language, of course. A big hug for words, which have been good company throughout. And who gets the final hug? That fretful, lingering embrace. Unable to let go, clinging, clinging, until as sure as night follows day, something dark closes in and pushes, pushes me. I'll leave you with an apology. And uh, it's an answer to people say, what makes you write? What do you write about? Why do you write? And all those things are often, often asked. So it's apologies. Comes, I suppose, from standing next to Philip Larkin at a bus stop. From waving, not drowning, and seldom being too far out. From seeing a mermaid behind the fish counter at Waitrose. From being 20, running all the words together and thinking, there must be more to it than this. From a proneness to ritual and sharpened pencils. From succumbing to the joys of self-plagiarism. From the need to craft a melodrama out of the remembered tediousness of one's life. From realising I may not, after all, be its patron saint. From expecting to be corrected while telling the truth from taking the words right out of the mouths of others, from feeling relaxed about being overtaken and disarmingly modest when overrated, from trying to prove that, if not for everyone, it is for anyone, from loving the trance that I'm in, from stepping out to the trance, able to say, hey, look what I made. If you want it, it's yours. From falling for clouds, from finishing your sentences, from wanting to write one that is too sad to read. From a failure to calm the brain's jostling beehive. From loitering pen in hand on the escalier. From the stealth required to follow the mind that wanders. From holding fast the instant before thought becomes language. From the joy of making lists. From being rubbish at suicide. From, wherever it comes, 
And for whatever reason, I apologize for writing so many poems. Thank you very much. Thank you very kind.